Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is John Marks, AIA, co-founding principal and chief artistic officer, I love that title, at Form 4 Architecture in San Francisco, California. John is responsible for developing Form 4 Architecture's design vision and philosophical language. In order to return a sense of humanity back into architecture, John advocates for the inclusion of philosophy, art, and poetry in the thoughtful making of place by creating emotionally resonant architecture and urban spaces. John's design work and writing have been published in more than 100 national and international publications and have earned more than 200 awards. He has presented at the Venice Architecture Biennale. Biennale. Okay, so they told me wrong anyway. Biennale <laughs> taught at UC Berkeley and designed multiple installations for Burning Man. John's most recent book, Etudes, The Poetry of Dreams and Other Fragments, combines his watercolors and poetry. The project we are going to chat about today is the Innovation Curve Life Science Campus in Palo Alto, California. Innovation Curve, a 265,895 square foot four-building lead platinum life science campus on the edge of the Stanford Research Park, celebrates Silicon Valley's innovation process. The mid-level blue horizontal ribbon shading element follows the shape of the classic R&D timeline, from creative spark through trial and tribulation to welcome success. The highs and lows of an idea within reach, yet to be perfected and fine-tuned, form the discrete points of a curve, metaphorically bearing anticipation and anxiety. 
In erecting a billboard of the innovation roller coaster, the community is reminded of the peaks and valleys of effervescent thinking characteristic of the process of change. Ever conscious of the importance of sustainability, the envelope shading strategy conceived in a lyrical way takes on a form evocative of the Silicon Valley entrepreneurial spirit. The clear glass envelope with glass shading fins creates a crystalline form that evokes a sense of lightness and spirit. The normative Silicon Valley campus is closed to the public. Innovation Curve breaks with this tradition by reaching out to the main road. A broad sweeping entry, drive, and pedestrian way welcoming the public into a vast inner courtyard garden. In making the innovation diagram the face of the buildings, users and visitors inhabit symbolically a space of and for innovation for expansive and intense focus. Why don't you tell me just one interesting thing about you that is not related to architecture or or our industry? I'm a poet, a published poet, so that's unusual in architecture, and it's an interesting aspect because poetry is, is generally a singular act, and architecture is a very collaborative act, and so the dynamic between those two things is really interesting. I talk about, if you compare architecture to a poet, a poet might be sitting in a cafe and struggling to come up with an idea, and suddenly they do. They look across the street, and they come up with an inspiration. But because it's by commission, as architecture is, they can't write it unless somebody's going to pay them. And so so they're looking angst-ridden, and someone comes over and they say, are you a poet? And you say, why, yes, I am. And they say, you know, you look distraught. You know, what's wrong? And it's like, well, I have this idea, and I want to write this poem, but I can't because nobody's paying me. And they go, well, I can solve that. Here's a dollar. And I go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they start writing the poem. Except they look over your shoulder and they go, well, what are you writing about? And you start to explain it. And they go, well, no, we, I want you to write about unicorns. And we're, <laughs> then you have to decide. Do you take the money or do you? Kind of sounds like architecture. <laughs> That's architecture. That's architecture. Exactly. I love that. But the thing is, you know, we get to do these wonderful things for people. And it's it's very much about people. And so it's collaborative. So right now, the architecture profession is is going into a very intensely collaborative mode. And so we sort of abandoned the idea of vision. And what I'm hoping is the future will be embracing the paradox of vision and collaboration rather than one or the other. So so the current thinking is we've rejected the Frank Lloyd Wrights and the Howard Rourke's, you know, who who blew up a building. And we've gone into a very high collaborative mode. But the collaborative mode has its downsides as well. And so uh, what I'm hoping is we can do the both of them together. So if you embrace paradox, you can see how it's a balance between them rather than resolving paradox, which generally means picking A or B. I, I just have this vibe that I'm about to get some really interesting answers to every question I ask you, which I love. So tell me a little bit about this project. What makes this building special? It's got a lyrical story to it. The story about this blue curving feature that also works into the solar control of the building and, and sort of gives it definition, but it's also got a symbolicness to it. Most buildings in Silicon Valley are more pragmatic. 
They might be lovely, they might be minimalist, they, you know, or not lovely, but they're generally somewhat boxy, they tend to be somewhat stripy. And fortunately, this has been changing lately, but this is unique in Silicon Valley because it is a building that carries symbolism within a commercial structure. And our client fell in love with the idea. I'm Allison Koo, and I am a managing director with Sandhill Property Company, and we're a commercial real estate development firm based in Silicon Valley. I'm basically the um, project manager, the development manager on the whole project. So I bought the project, I bought the site and structured all the deals, worked with Form 4 to go through the entire city entitlement process and the design, leased out the buildings, and then we're, we're now on the other side at stabilization. I think in our market, it's important to do good work. And so I think for us, we wanted to deliver a product that stands out in a crowded marketplace and bring a level of prestige and quality to what we're delivering. It garnered a good amount of attention and as well, the market responded. So it is fully leased as well. And prior to some of the up and downs of the market, this project has been able to pivot a couple times as it relates to companies. And so the the building itself, I think, is very practical. It's a you know rectangular building, but what creates that that uniqueness is kind of the um, unique features, right? On really on the exterior of the building, and so that was able to kind of set us apart in a market where we're trying to be competitive, yet at the same time command a high quality placement and pricing. And I think. John in particular has a very creative perspective and personality in terms of his approach. And he, and that's combined with our company and our founder, who also prides himself in stepping outside the box and doing a little bit more than other traditional companies may do, because there is a premium to that, right? So it's not, it's not the cheapest, but I think your longevity and your um, uniqueness in the market and also your premium that you can command down the line you know, makes that investment worthwhile. The original technology company that was there was called Beckman Industries. And Beckman Industries developed the oscilloscope. So when you think of the heart monitor thing, it all started on the site. So there's an unintentional but interesting coincidence that this shape that everybody thinks is a heart monitor shape based on an oscilloscope, that that actually was developed there way back when. So we were very fortunate that our client was very excited about, about taking that metaphor and then running with it and developing this campus that was very unusual. And this is a very, very popular campus. It started out not being biotech. It started out being just straight up technology office space in Stanford Research Park in Palo Alto, which is one of the highest rent technology office spaces in the world. And so their client wanted to have a building that would last and be impactful and would increase the value of a site that was already very valuable. I mean, it was a redevelopment. So it was an existing building that uh, had uh, Facebook originally, one of their larger campuses. Obama had a town hall there, which is kind of its claim to fame. Centrifuge was invented in that building. So there's some interesting, it's not historic, but it's some elements, you know, considered interesting happened there. So when we were doing that, we were trying to think how to best position it and what layout and how we would set ourselves apart. We were able to do a lead platinum building with an all glass window wall. We've got these vertical fins 
that moderate the sun on all the different sides of the buildings that are sort of this ethereal kind of frosted glass. And then each building has a section that has colored glass. So there's a red building, a yellow building, a blue building, and a purple building all around the courtyard. It could be a campus or it could easily be multi-tenant, which every, you know, then every building is a unique user. So that allowed us to pivot and, and react to the market as company sizes and, and requirements and demands are changing. And then because the building can be, you know, can accommodate the heavier requirements for MEP, et cetera, for life science, we were able to then invest in those upgrades, essentially in the building to keep ourselves active and occupied. What kind of um, interior spaces are in this building? What kinds of things did you have to accommodate? There's two parts to it. There's the lobbies, which are also very, very unique for Silicon Valley as well. And then there's the interior space. So the one thing the developer liked was it was lyrical, but yet pragmatic. So it's like two boxes that have been pulled apart and then shifted 20 feet. And in that in-between space, that blue wall, that blue line that we were talking about, it's sort of dives down and creates this lobby space that goes through the whole building. So the way I represent it in, in just talking about it is that when you go into the lobby space, it feels like you're in a museum. And it's very serene. It's very zen-like. There's a lot of Black River rock and these sort of little pathways that are almost like bridges that go through the building. And in fact, from some of the entrances, you walk through a very shallow bridge but with water on either side. So there's sort of this transitional moment to go into the lobby. But it is unique to be able to stand at the outside of the lobby, looking in and seeing all the way through the building. But the spaces inside on the two sides, you know, have 15-foot floor-to-floors, have a lot of light, a lot of garden space. You feel like you're in the forest or in a garden when you're there. And then you've got the color that comes from the, the colored fins. Uh, or the, the ethereal quality of the other of the other fins that aren't colored. So this is a life science building. So it is now. So what happened was it started out not being life science, and it started out being Machine Zone took it, and Machine Zone makes I think World of War, and it's a, a, an online multiple user war game, and then they ended up shrinking them you know they were going to take all four buildings and and as those buildings became open biotech companies rushed in and so they've adapted the buildings now to make them into to biotech now there there were some compromises because a real biotech building would have an 18-foot penthouse to hide all the equipment that's on the roof so they had to make do with a 12 and a half foot penthouse but apparently it's worked out just fine because we haven't heard any complaints about the buildings and how, you know, whether it was difficult or not to convert them to, to biotech. Strictly about design for this question, what were some of the design challenge that excited you the most about this project? And how did you, you know, from, from early conception, I want to make this happen and this can be challenging to make happen. And then how'd you get there? What were things that you found, found pretty challenging about this building? Well, the beginning we had this this kind of like this diagram idea. And so we showed our client three different designs. One was fairly straightforward and expected. And then we went to what we call SchemeX. And SchemeX is the thing that is what we would do left our own devices, knowing what the client wants, but it's going to really push the client to the extreme. 
And we found that if you go through this gradation between the expected solution to the middle solution to the extreme solution, more often than not, the client will pick the extreme one, which they did in this case. But you've got this wild idea of these, you know, curving roof forms and all this stuff happening. Then you got to deliver it. So then you got to work into the details. Then you've got to figure out how to make that blue wall go up and over the top. And how do you frame that? You know, how do you do the structure for it? So it's all then about implementation. The original idea of the design is very, very consistent to the very first model we showed the client that the client signed up for. But getting it to actually look good and getting it to actually work because of the curves is a lot of work. And it took a lot of cleverness and it took a combination of the contractor and the architect and the client and you know everybody, the structural engineer, everybody coming together to figure out how to do this. And there were some unusual things. There's actually plywood on the project, which is odd to me. Because usually on a commercial project, you don't see any wood products for a variety of different reasons. Some of it's, you know, fire code. So it all had to be fire-treated plywood. But to get some of those curves to work, to support the metal, you couldn't do it with Ben's Gold, for example. You, you can't get it to curve like that. So they had to work with it. We had to work with them. Uh, and there were two different contractors, actually, both from Venice, Italy, that did the exterior metal and glass. And the first group struggled to get the building to be waterproof. And, and then the second group just nailed it. But there was a lot of detailing because, you know, it's a cost to quality ratio. And um, we really had to work with them in both cases a little harder with the first group to get it to all work well. What about, because you kind of rolled into that a little bit in talking about um, design challenges, what were some of the challenges during construction? Did you have to pivot at any point and change something or pick a different material? Or did it just go so beautiful and smoothly? Um, there's always a lot of value engineering aspects that you come in and, and you start out thinking, oh, I can't compromise on that. And DevCon, who was the, um, who was the general contractor, was really good about throwing a lot of ideas out. And so we'd have to go through the ideas and yes, no, yes, no. And then can we do this a different way? And so on the micro level, there were a lot of those little things that we had to kind of adjust for. And then of course you start building it and sometimes they don't realize, they think that you're supposed to start on this end and then you put the reveals, you know, in a certain place. And then they, do, they don't realize that you have to do it as we drew it, but they thought that they were going to do it a different way. And um, then you got to figure out how to adjust for that without blowing the budget. Because always, if you try to make a change, the schedule at a certain point will keep you from being able to make that change, whether to change it back to what it was supposed to be or to make an improvement. And so oftentimes the, the owner could take a credit, but then the, the design is compromised heavily. And nobody in the long run feels good about it. So DevCon was pretty good. I mean, there wasn't anything that was, you, you go out and you cringe when you see it, you know, that it was, that it was, there was just a lot of little tiny details everywhere. Well, and that doesn't drive every architect crazy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, mm -hmm. no, this little detail. You, I, I joke all the time, go to conferences or whatever, and you're going to lunch with a bunch of architects. And I joke that it takes like eight hours to get to lunch because they have to stop and touch every building or, yeah. or look at this or who yeah. does, why did somebody do this? But um, So let's talk about materials a little bit. 
Tell me about some of the materials you used on this building. Um, if they came out the way you wanted them to, was there anything particularly unique? Yeah, so all along we had the idea of this blue metal and the glass, and those were the primary things. You know, there was also a little bit of silver metal, and then there's a lot of little details, especially on the lobby walls. You know, we've got two stories of glass, and so we've got these really beautiful, thin uh, German sunshades that were created. And then, you know, working with the contractor, the German contractor for it was really delightful because it's all little micro changes that you make, but again, trying to save money on it. So it's like, okay, I know you want to do that, but you can't do that. So we're going to have to do this. So that wall in the lobby, the two-story wall, that was probably the biggest value engineering aspect that we had to go through on the project. And at one time we wanted it to be mullion free you know, which, which architects love, right? It's just all glass. So that's what we drew at the beginning. And it was like, uh, we can't even remotely afford that. So we had to scale back from that. And then it's like mullion patterns. So the contractor at the time wanted to do a grid, which would have looked like, you know, you were inside of a cage. So working with them to develop the right spacing and the right mullion thickness and, and the difference between the thickness and the depth to try to get the wall to span. And that that was a tremendous amount of effort. And it paid off because it looks really, really good. But there were moments where we thought it was just going to be a disaster. And fortunately, you know, we would push, they would pull. And in the end, it worked out. But we, we probably, we spent a hundred hours or more trying to refine that for value engineering purposes. Ouch. <laughs> to, um, you know, you, you've been talking about a lot of glass and you were able to get lead platinum. Did you have to do something in particular with your materials or with all that glass to to get to that goal? So the glass itself is high performance, but regular glass, right? High performance glass. I think it's solar band 70 or something like that. But really what it was that did it was this series of every five feet, there's a 30 inch deep glass vertical fin and then there's a 30 inch deep horizontal light shelf and solar control that's metal that goes across and then you've got the blue walls which are actually four to five feet deep and then these big overhangs on the end and so basically the building is really well shaded but it doesn't feel like it's a dark cave of a building the client wanted us to find the sweet spot that all of the depths of all of these verticals and horizontals would be the same depth. And that ended up being, after a lot of analysis, 30 inches. On some of the facades, 30 is a little too little. I mean, a little by like, you know, 5%. But on some of the facades, it's way overkill. But the developer wanted it to look the same. So we found the sweet spot. So were some of these fins and shades and things on the outside of the building done intentionally to meet some of these sustainability goals or were or was it totally aesthetics? It was there to to specifically meet the sustainability goals, but it was done in a really beautiful ethereal way, right? So our goal with this one was how can you show how a highly sustainable building could still have lots of daylight. We had a daylight consultant on the project, and we actually have we have skylights running down the middle. It's only a two-story building, running down the middle of the building, and then we have some two-story spaces with a little slot in between, so that even the deepest parts have some daylight in them. 
And interestingly enough, we used view glass up there. It's a photochromatic glass so that when you turn the dial on it, it can turn, in this case, kind of a dark blue. So with a skylight, you're getting all this light coming down in, and that light doesn't serve the sustainability purpose. So when, when you've got too much light, you darken the skylight. What was interesting, though, was the skylight had a color cast that was a little cold, so we ran colored glass to moderate the color shift so that when you're in there, it doesn't feel cold because view glass in particular has a coolness to it that some people don't like. So we, we use colored glass to moderate that. That's the first time I've heard of that kind of glass in a, in a skylight. Does it adjust itself based on the amount of light or does somebody have to physically go push a button? Or I believe in this case, it's computer programmed, right? So that it does have some light sensors because you, you, you want it to be as open. So if it's an overcast day, it won't be darkened. But if there's sun on it, then it'll darken itself. But, but it doesn't rely on, on humanity to adjust it. Well, that's probably good because we know what happens in buildings when you rely on humanity to adjust things. It, they never get adjusted. Um, were there particular disciplines, whether it be consultants or, or construction advisors, that were really p- played a big part in, in helping this building come together and making your life a little easier? Well, it's a combination of, you know, having good engineers. I mean, the structural engineers. MEP, interesting enough, was design-build, which is very oh. common in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Just, I mean, there was a little bit of a performance back at the beginning by professional engineers, but but they, they just love doing design-build MEP in Silicon Valley. The Daylight Consultant, which was Ubalodi, uh, which is a UC Berkeley-based group, they were great. And then we had a really good um, sustainability consultant as well. And a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful um, landscape architect. So we've got these different types of landscape areas. There's like a redwood forest in one part of it. There's the rolling hills of California in another part of it. You know, there's sort of the, the European plaza, piazza in another part of it. The whole project sits on um, approximately 14 acres, and the landscaping integration and the exterior spaces also are a critical component of that entire aesthetic and how we were able to accomplish that. So what I think we were trying to do with this team and have done in a couple of projects is create a very usable space because the worst is, in our from our perspective and in, in the market, is you design a beautiful building that it's hard to build and not usable, right? So like, we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that we have a usable building that lays out efficiently for companies and tenants, but at the same time have a wow factor, right? That brings pride to both our project as well as gives a tenant a sense of presence. Both when I worked in MEP, I worked on some projects that were um, design-build MEP. And when and another large architecture firm that I worked for that did a lot of multifamily stuff, there were some times where the developers wanted to do the MEP and design build. I found that to be a very challenging process when it came to putting together the documents for the project and getting through construction because the MEP didn't work for the architect. Coordinating was, you know, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. Did you have any challenges like that with the MEP being design build? So what happens is they say, we want to do design-build MEP. And, and so the electrical 
you can have a lighting designer that'll help. So we did have a lighting designer on this project and that helped so that we, we knew what we wanted and then they had to do the engineering for it. We have some very interesting and elegant lights and that was a fellow named Michael Souter. Very talented, very you know budget conscious and all this kind of stuff. But the mechanical especially and even worse is the fire protection. The biggest curse is not that they don't work for us, but that they don't want to get involved until we're about 75% of the way through working drawings. And by then, we've had to make some assumptions and we've had to do some things and, you know, kind of design around things. And then they come in and, and, and they go, well, no, we've got to do this. We've got to do that. They come in so late in the game. And I don't know if they're trying to save money because, you know, they want to wait until everything calms down and then come in. But then they create such disruption. They come out and they put a sprinkler pipe right through the middle of the lobby. And then what they do is they get there first so they can get that pipe through there. And then you go, why is the pipe here? It's, it's really horrible. And they go, it's the quickest point between point A and point B. And you got, you got to move it. And they go, we're happy to move it, but it's really expensive. So they just don't work with you. You're preaching to the choir. So there's a message to our listeners. If you're doing your MEP design build, get them on board early and develop a really good, good communication plan. So my final question for you tonight, what is your world domination statement? Personal or professional, what mark do you hope to leave on this world? So we've been working on that. It's It's a notion that's called second century modernism. And this is this notion that architects have not been allowed to design beautiful buildings in the last 50 years. And that statement led to a book called The Absurdity of Beauty, Rebalancing the Modernist Narrative, which is an advocacy monograph that we did with the Architectural Review, which is a magazine out of uh, London. And basically, the, the, the notion of architects not being allowed to design beautiful buildings, people would say well, that's absurd. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? And I would say, you would think so, but we're not allowed. And it's that absurdity that started the absurdity of beauty. So we're advocating for beauty. Now, architects are very, very shy about the B word, the beauty word. Now we're doing another monograph with the Architectural Review on gender and architecture. So you look at the last century of of modernism in architecture, And one might argue that that is an architecture of abstraction. It's intellectual, it's linear, logical, verbal again. And in many ways, it's a very male point of view about what architecture should be and about the way you look at society and whether it's nurture, you know, fight or flight. Is it nurture or is it domination, right? So my version of domination is to turn architecture into something that can create lovable buildings. I I go to these things where I talk to people about lovability and I talk to people about emotional meaning and architecture and beauty. And, you know, there's some some of the architects say, you know, okay, you know, beauty, maybe we could bring that back into the lexicon of architecture and, and, you know, start talking about it again. And I say, well, you don't really understand when I say beauty, how far I want you to go. And they go, no, 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 we're, we're kind of game. I go, okay, we get the room. How many people, you know, would be excited about working on a beautiful building. And maybe, you know, 75% of the people raise their hands because there are a lot of architects that don't believe that beauty has a place in architecture. They don't. So, but you got 75%. And then I say, okay, now, how many of you feel 
you would be excited to work on a pretty building. And the moment you get to the word pretty, they think superficial. And then it's maybe 40% of the people with their hands up. And, and most of them are women and not men. Because men just, they just can't under, they just think that pretty is superficial. And so what's happened with the 50 years is of architects not being able to design beautiful buildings is there was a notion that Robert Venturi in Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture, you know, started to open the door to complex and interesting buildings, except that he was an intellectual. So he wanted you to stay on that linear, logical, verbal side, and he didn't want you to design from the heart. And oddly enough, in 1966, when he wrote that book, The Temptations made a song famous, which was called Beauty is Only Skin Deep. And that notion of beauty is only skin deep got translated into the architectural profession and the fine arts institutions to mean that anything that was beautiful was de facto superficial. And we have learned that we need beauty in our lives. We need that emotional meaning in our lives. And we've denied ourselves that for 50 years. And so my nefarious plot for world domination is to fill it with a sense of compassion and care. This is the gender monograph that we're doing. To challenge the notion is that maybe architecture needs to be more feminine and that the men have had it too long and look what they've created. And we need more love and care in our architecture. So that's my nefarious plot for world domination is to convince architects to embrace their feminine spirit. Not what you might have expected. <laughs> I, I'm all in for that. Couldn't agree with you more. I, I'm in the club. John, I'm not kidding. I could sit here and talk to you for hours. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.